Hey, good morning. If you're a visitor with us, uh, my name is Mark Wells. Our pastor, Mitch Mayer, is on a well-deserved, well-earned vacation with his family on spring break. So he's asked me to step in and share with you some things. And it's really an honor and a privilege to be able to do that this morning, uh, to share with you some things that are on my heart. We'll take a break from the book of Acts, and uh, I'm going to share with you some things that I've been growing in my life, been doing in my life for the past couple of months. Uh, Before we get started, let me ask you a question first. Um, If you've been following Christ for a while, or or you've been a believer for a while, you've heard a lot of sermons, you've heard a lot of people speak, you've heard a lot of, uh, been to a lot of conferences, and I want to ask you this, how many sermons do you truly, truly remember? Honestly remember. One, maybe two, if I pushed you, maybe three, four, I've been a believer for about 40 years, and if you asked me, I could probably, if you pushed me, I could probably come up with five, six sermons that just stuck in my mind, that just ones that I remember and never will forget and things that uh, have caused me to grow in my faith in Christ. Um, But there's one sermon that is greater than them all. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And most of you, if not all of you, will remember, maybe not fully, but in part, pieces of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a more memorable speech than Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It's more motivating than Churchill's Darkest Hour speech. Remember that one? When Britain was entering into World War II as they anticipated a full-out invasion by the Nazis, he said, Churchill said, uh, he told the world that Britain would stand firm. We shall defend our our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on our beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Now, that's a good one. You know, that that, that gets you going. Um, The sermon we're going to fly over today is more relevant and stronger than the imperatives that Ronald Reagan's speech when he gave it in West Berlin in 1987, if you were around then. You remember when he told the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Mr. Gorbachev, remember this? Tear down that wall. That's a good one. It's more timelier and eternal than Martin Luther's King's speech, Uh, I Had a Dream speech, and I think it's more full of applicable truth than any sermon Billy Graham ever gave in his wonderful, amazing career of sharing the gospel with millions. Let me see if you remember some of these quotes. Now, um, some of these quotes, you know, are, are used in secular institutions as well as uh, Christian institutions, and it's just it's such a popular sermon that, that people just kind of take them out of context and use them. Let me see if you remember some of these. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust may destroy, or thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where things do not break or st- in, thieves do not break in or steal. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore I tell you, The truth, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet the heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value and worthy than they are? But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left one also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Do not judge or you'll be judged, and 
Here's another one. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Like I said, you've heard a lot of these uh, quotes before. They've been used in secular um, institutions as well as Christian. This passage has been referred to as a Sermon on the Mount. And uh, truthfully, I think it'd be better named to talk on a hill. Uh, most people see it like something like this in mind when they think of the Sermon on the Mount. When actually, uh, I think it was something more like the next slide you'll see. Um, it really wasn't much of a mountain. Matter of fact, the next slide is going to show you where most people believe, most scholars believe that Sermon on the Mount actually took place somewhere in Jerusalem. That's kind of it. It's not much of a mountain. It's beautiful, though, isn't it? And um, they think that's where it happened. The Sermon on the Mount can be found in chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. It can also be found in Luke in parts. It's, it's not a long um, sermon. You could probably read it in 15 minutes. It doesn't take too long. But no doubt, it's been referred to over the years in, in James's writings, in uh, Paul's writings, in Peter's writings. You can see him going back to the sermon over and over and over again as they heard it given that one day. I had the privilege of working through the Sermon on the Mount with my Sunday school class, and so they'll remember some of this stuff. Um, but I tell you, and I told some folks before the service, I have read this sermon for years, I've uh, preached it, I've taught it, but it wasn't until this year that it had a tremendous impact on my spiritual journey. I mean, it, it really literally changed my life in a lot of ways, and all the truths that I learned from it are gonna take me a lifetime to, to apply and render in my life. And um, I hope this morning, as we can't go through the whole sermon uh, verse by verse, I'm going to do a flyover, and I hope this morning you'll get to see some truths of the sermon that just really come forth and will impact your life in a strong way. The first thing that really had an impact on my life is the setting of the sermon. We have to understand this before we just kind of, kind of pull it out of the passage of Scripture and read it. The setting of the sermon uh, was that Israel was, had been conquered by Rome some 60 years prior they had been, 60, 70 years prior, they had been uh, overrun and the Roman authorities come in. And so when they come in and conquer a, a, a place, they take slaves with them back to Rome. And many of us think, have this idea in our minds that, um, you know, they took these slaves back a caravan to the peasants and the hard workers and, the, and they just kind of moved them all back. They, I'm sure they took some of those folks, but think about this. If you really want to take a slave, who are you going to take with you? Well, they took the doctors and the educated people, and the lawyers, and the architects, and the bricklayers, and the metal, uh, or just, uh, metal uh, people that did fine work with metal and different things, they took them back because they wanted the best of the best. And they brought all those people back to Rome with them. And so what was left really back in, in Israel was, it was kind of the, the, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were the religious leaders of the day, but also just the general people. They had to learn their skills. They had to fill in the gaps where other people left. And, and Rome generally didn't bother people. As long as you paid your taxes and kept the peace, they really didn't care what you did. And so society kind of went on and uh, people learned their crafts, but most of the highly educated people were either gone or uh, they were the religious people of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of that time. And they re ruled by religious culture. and They ruled by um, autonomy and dogmatism and oppression of the people. And what the Pharisees taught the people was so important. They were teaching the people, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be loved by God, you need to look like me. Right? That teaching still goes on today. If you want to be blessed by God, if you want to, if you want to have what I have and know God like I know God, you've got to look like I do, like I do and you've got to do what I do and act like I act. But because you are poor, and because you are sick, and because your life has been blown apart, 
and because your um, life is just not going well, the reason is, is you're living in sin. And God's wrath is upon you. You've got to get it all together. You've got to be like us. Listen to how Jesus describes uh, the attitude of the Pharisees. This is in Luke 18, 9 through 14. And he also told the parable to some people who trusted in themselves as they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, the throwaway people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to the heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man uh, went to their houses. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, that's what Jesus even clarified what was going on with the Pharisees, this attitude of, you got to be like me. I don't want to be like one of them. Those are the throwaway people, the people that don't matter. If you want to matter, if you want to matter to God, you got to be like me. You got to look like I look and dress like I dress and give like I give and worship God like I worship God. You know, in my Sunday school class back there in room two, I talk about this with my class a lot. I look out the window and there's a wall separating um, Cinco Ranch from Redeemer Community Church. And it's kind of a, it's a real brick wall, but it's a, it's a metaphorical wall in a way that I always ask my class and I wonder, what is it that's keeping people from coming across that wall and walking into any church in our area? We have great churches in our area. What, what, what's keeping the general population from crossing that wall and walking into a church door? And I, I really have to, I struggle with it and I have to think about it a lot. And because I think that most people in our community are not atheists, and um, I, I think they're probably what I call the theist, Katie theist, you know? They believe in some form of God, they just don't understand it completely. They believe that there is a God out there, whatever form that may take, whatever that may be, but, but they're not really atheists. They may be agnostic, um, but they have some idea or concept of God. Not that there's not atheists out there, but most of them are, are good people who would say, yeah, I acknowledge there's a creator or a God. And I struggle with what keeps people from crossing that, that wall and walking into a church. And, and um, one of my heroes and, and former mentors by, as an author was one of the 20th century's kind of foremost pastors and authors and biblical expositor. His message of authentic Christianity really penetrated me. And he wrote a lot of books. His name was Ray Stedman. And uh, he said this about our culture. The reason most people don't go to church is because they've been there. Did you catch that one? The reason that most people don't go to church is because they've been there. Everyone knows that the church is a place where, we, where love ought to be manifested, and many people have come to church hoping to find a demonstration of love only to discover an encyclopedia on theology. He was a DTS grad, just like me. He loves theology, did a great job expositing the word. But sometimes I wonder if the church as a whole is missing the point to communicate to our brothers and sisters over the wall that God does not hate them, that God is not looking down on them, that God loves them and God desires to have a relationship with them 
And he desires to bring them back into that relationship. And I really struggle with that. And I think that's our job as the church, really. To communicate the love of God, the fact that we are broken people and that God has a plan for our lives. That he desires to be involved in every area of our lives. And that's the church's job. To go make disciples of people. To make people look at Jesus and take, turn around and make a step towards him. And say, life, the way I know it, is not working. But they have something to offer that's different. I hope we do a better job of that as a church worldwide, and I hope we do a better job of that as Redeemer, and I think we are. I mean, programs like Regen that we're doing and our Wednesday night programs are just fantastic opportunities for people to see that God loves them and cares for them. So um, that's a little background. Let's, let's talk about the people and where they're coming from. In chapter 4 of, of, of uh, Matthew, where Jesus is talking about these people, and this is chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, if you have a Bible or if you're going to read along with me on a device, listen to what Jesus says about the people that he's encountering going into the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 4, 23-25 says this, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the word, the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill, with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. The throwaway people, you see. Large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So these are the people that are following Jesus, right? I'm sure there's some Pharisees and, and intermixed in there. And they were following Jesus because he had something to offer that the religious culture of the day was not giving them. They had no clue what, what he was talking about. They said, I've never heard anybody teach like this. And they were following him a lot because they wanted to be healed. But also some were going, I've just never heard this before. The Sadducees and, and Pharisees never taught like this. And they're hearing something that's, that churns their heart. And they want to know more about it and they're following Jesus. Well, 1,500 years prior to Jesus walking on the scene... Moses is talking to the Jewish people, and God is speaking to Moses. Listen to these verses. This is out of Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. It's Deuteronomy 18, 15. Then 18, 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put the words in his mouth, and, you sh and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So Jesus walks on the scene some 1,500 years later, and John sees him coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Here he comes. The greater Moses is walking onto the scene. This one who will deliver the people from their bondage and from their pain and from their sin. He's coming. And he says this in chapters 3 and 4 of Matthew. He says, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other Gospels, he says uh, something like that. But in Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's he talking about? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, you know what? And let me tell you something. A couple of months ago, I shared something up here that when we come into worship together on Sunday mornings, I, I've often said over the years that I've been doing this that I want you guys to, to push away your weeks, the, the struggles of the weeks, the different things that's, that's gone on, the hardships you have, and come in and freely worship Christ. And that's true to some extent, but I think I got it all wrong. I don't think 
That's true worship. I really think that God says to each and every one of us, don't push your week aside and the, and the struggles you have and come worship me. I think he says this, I want you to come into this place with all your mess, with all your junk, with all your troubles, with all your hardships. I want you to come into my kingdom because my kingdom is at hand. It's for you, throwaway people. It's for you who are hurting and struggling. It's for you who have difficulties in jobs and marriage and finances. Come into my kingdom where I am and learn something new. I really believe that. Because he's telling these people the kingdom of God is at hand. What's he saying to them? He's saying repent because the kingdom is here for you. I'm offering it to you. So here's what he's really saying. Because repent's kind of a religious word and we kind of throw it all kinds of connotations to what, what that means. He's saying this to the people that are coming in. That's the sick, the hurting, the throwaway people. He's saying, I just want you to rethink everything. If you come into my kingdom, I want you to rethink everything. I want you to rethink your life. Because what I'm about to tell you in the sermon is going to change your life. It's going to radically turn everything upside down because you're never going to hear anything like this again. And I want to prepare you, the disciples who he's really talking to, for a time where I'm going to be gone and you're going to have to deal with life on your own. And I want you, I want you to learn how to deal with, with my truth and my word. So guys, come into my kingdom. It's open to you. It's here for you. And I want you to rethink everything everything. So let me ask you this, two questions as we jump into this. Um, what kind of person do you want to be? Really, honestly, what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of husband do you want to be? What kind of wife do you want to be? What kind of boyfriend, girlfriend do you want to be? What kind of son or daughter do you want to be? What kind of student do you want to be? The second question, what kind of life do you want to live? And I think that's the question he's asking these people who come around him on this mountaintop. He's saying, hey guys, you, you've heard it said, but I'm going to tell you something different. What, what kind of person do you want to be, really? And what kind of life do you want to live? And he's going to jump into the sermon there. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 of the Sermon on the Mount, follow along with me or listen to this. Seeing the crowds, okay, Seeing the throwaway people, he went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That's not just the 12. That's probably a good group of guys and folks that came around him wanted to hear what he was saying. They didn't have PA systems or microphones and just a, a group of people. And he sits down, and this greater Moses comes onto the scene, and he opens his mouth, and he taught them, saying, you see it? The greater Moses walks onto the scene, he opens his mouth, and he starts talking to these people. He says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now just stop right there, right? We've read that many, many times. What does that mean to these people who he's saying this to? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think what he's saying is, hey folks, um, have you come to a point in life where you're just ready to tap out? You're done. You've had it. Life has just taken its toll on you, and you go, I, I, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. Life is my addictions. My things are crushing in on me, and I've had it. There's no way I can do what these Pharisees are telling me to do. I've just had it. 
I've tried to be good on my own, and I've done it for a while, and I've achieved some things for a while, and I've done really great, but before you know it, something happens, and, and I just blow up again. My anger comes back, or something happens, and my life just explodes. I can't be good anymore. I can't be good enough. I've tried to be religious, but that has failed me. And I think Jesus looks at them and says, blessed are you because you've come to a place where you need help outside of yourself. You've come to a place where it said, I, I'm tapping out. I, I can't do this anymore. I need help. Fill in the blank with what area. And they come before a Messiah who says, I got answers for you. I've got solutions for you. Listen to me, the greater Moses who walks on the scene. For my kingdom is at hand. My kingdom is available to you. And if you want to come into my kingdom, I'm going to ask you this. I want you to rethink your life. I want you to rethink everything. Everything's on the table. You're going to rethink it all. And I'm going to hammer you with some stuff here pretty quickly, and it's going to change your life. And then he says this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I have taught this for years, and I have read this for years, and you know, you come to a point in life where you're grieving, and, and you just kind of go, I've had it. My marriage is, is over, uh, life is bad, uh, medical things are coming to me, I, I've just had it, and you come to a point in life on your own outside of the kingdom of God, and you say, I, I've just had it. And you kind of go, I, I'm mourning God. I'm mourning for something. I'm looking and reaching for something in my life that will give me hope and give me meaning. And Jesus looks at the people and he says, come into my kingdom. Come into my kingdom, for blessed are you when you mourn. When you come to a point where, you, where your spirit is broken and you mourn and you say, I need something other than myself. It's time for me to rethink everything, to change the way I view things in life, because whatever I've been doing in the past 10, 20, 30 years, it's not working, clearly, because I'm ready to tap out. I also think it means this. You know, and I, I've never thought about this before, and it came to light. We hear this, this beatitude mentioned a lot of times in um, funerals, and it could be a, a believer or not a believer. It doesn't matter. We hear, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, I was thinking about this, that really what that means, every, every one of us is going to suffer loss. Every one of us is going to go through hardship. We're going to lose loved ones. Jesus sure did. And you mourn. Everybody's going to mourn. So why would he say this to these people? And I just thought about it, it, it just like it reads. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You're going to grieve in life. You're going to hurt in life. Blessed are you if you're inside my kingdom and you're mourning because I will give you comfort. Outside of my kingdom, when you're grieving and going through mourning, hey, you're on your own. I mean, whatever it takes to make you feel better, fine. But if you're in my kingdom, if my kingdom is in you, I will comfort you when you go through grief and hardship. Remember who he's talking to here, people that were sick and ill and hurting and diseased, and he's saying, come into my kingdom because I know how to give you comfort. I'm not saying everything's going to be fixed and it's going to be all, you know, great and happy, but I will bless you and I will give you comfort if you come in and put your trust in me. I want you to rethink your mourning and what you do with that. And he says, blessed are those who hunger 
and thirsts for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay? Blessed are you when you come to a point and you just say, I want to be right. I don't understand what's going on, God, but first of all, I need to get right with you, right? I need to turn and rethink my life and repent and start walking towards you because you've got something different than life has to offer and then that I can come up with my own in, in human reasoning. You've got something different that I haven't seen before, so I'm going to repent and turn to you. I'm going to confess to you my sins, and I'm going to become into your kingdom, right? I'm going to step into your kingdom, and now I'll be blessed. Blessed are you. So blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is right? First, get your relationship right with God, but don't negate this, friends. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, when you desire your life to be right on earth. I want the relationship with my wife to be right. I want the relationship with my kids to be right. I want the relationship with my relatives and in-laws to be right. I want righteousness, God. Would you bless me with that? And he says, yeah, I'll do that. I'll teach you how to do that. Get ready to listen to me because I'm going to make you rethink your relationships. You're going to rethink everything if you're in my kingdom. And if you listen to me, don't ever forget those, those three words. Listen to me. If you listen to me, things will go well for you right? Your life's not going to be some fantasy world, but things are going to go a lot better. And he says, listen to me. When you come to my kingdom, I'm going to reorganize your auto response. I'm going to reorganize your auto response by having you rethink everything because I have a better way of life. Do you get what I mean by auto response? Our, our DNA, our, who we are, we always bounce back to a certain behavior. And I think what he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount is this, I'm going to want you to rethink everything so when that situation comes up with your relatives or that anger explodes or that sexual issue comes up in your life or that addiction comes up in your life, I don't want you to auto-respond to, to auto back to the way you did. I want you to respond the way I'm going to teach you in this sermon. That's what I want for you, and it'll change your life. Now, as the sermon goes on, like I said, I'd love to spend hours and go through this with you, but it, it goes through all kinds of issues like, hey, let's talk about your sexuality. Let's talk about lust. Let's talk about anger and murder. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about divorce. Let's talk about lying. And let's talk about how you treat those people who don't like you. Let's talk about your hypocritical judging. Let's talk about self-righteousness and your hypocritical behavior. Because that's what they had been taught by the religious culture of the day. That's what they've been taught. That's all they knew. Be like us. What do the Pharisees do? They're out in the corner preaching so everybody can see them, and they come into the, the, uh, the church, they take all their money and pour it into a big funnel so it makes all kinds of noise, sounds like trumpets going off, so people would know, hey, look what I'm doing, right? Don't be like them. Let me tell you what it's not, the middle part of this Sermon on the Mount. It is, and hear me on this, it is not a mountain of morality, It is not this mountain that he says, all right, Christian, you have to achieve all this kind of stuff. This is what you got to do to be like me. It is not that at all. Matter of fact, he says, hey, uh, you folks that want to come into my kingdom, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting there and I hear that, I kind of go, right. Right, Jesus. You want me to surpass that? Look at him. Look what they're doing up there. But here's the key. 
And the Sermon on the Mount is so key in this. He's saying, I don't want you to be like the Pharisees. I want you to surpass that. How are you going to do that? By the, the imputation of my righteousness into your life, my goodness into your life, my salvation. So here's what I want to do with you believers. You're in my kingdom, the kingdom of his hand. I want to move upstream on you. I want to start changing your heart so your heart changes. And when your heart changes, your behavior changes. This is not, and so many people teach it like this, a behavior modification sermon. This is what you got to do. You can't lust. You can't cheat. You can't lie. You got to do your oaths correct. Oh, I'm not doing any of that right. Well, you know why? Because your heart has not fallen in love with Jesus. You're making it a mountain of morality versus letting Jesus move upstream and changing your heart where he says, do not commit adultery. And so the next time I look at someone in lust, I kind of go, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that stuff. I want to change. I want to be a different person because that doesn't work for me. The next time anger boils up in my life and it's, and it's towards somebody I love, I don't want to be that. I don't want my anger to explode like that. And Jesus says, that's right. Step aside. I want to move upstream and change your heart and, and want you to fall in love with me. And we'll change that stuff. We'll start working on it from the inside out. Because if you think you have to have it all together before you come to Christ, you know what? You never will. You'll never have it all together. Dr. Rosera Champagne Butterfield, she's an author, a former tenured professor of the English and Women's Studies at Syracuse University. She advised the LGBT student group. She wrote at Syracuse University Policy for Same-Sex Couples and actively lobbied for the LGBT aims alongside her lesbian partner. In 1999, after repeatedly reading the Bible in large chunks for her research, Rosaria converted to Christianity. Her first book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, details her conversion. Listen to a couple quotes that, that she said that still blow me away. The first one, as the years unfold after my conversion, I started to look dangerously cleaned up. She says, I'm not. That's good insight. The second one is really even more amazing. I learned that the first rule of repentance, that repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. How much greater? About the size of a mustard seed. That, that changes my life. That, 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 that is so amazing that she could say something like that because you know what? I have to become more intimate with God, more in love with Jesus than I have to do with my sin. Because right now I'm in love with my, outside of the kingdom, I'm in love with my sin, right? It, it, it scratches an itch on my back, you know, and I like it. And it's not working for me. And, and, and what she's saying here is that you need to fall more in love with Jesus. When, when my desire for God becomes greater than my desire and my love for my sin, then things are going well inside the kingdom of God. That's amazing. And, and I hope that sticks with you forever because that's what the middle part of the Sermon on the Mount is about. Listen to what uh, Matthew chapter nine, 7, verse 9 through 11 say. Um, what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? I'm sorry, let me step back there. I, I skipped that. Um, what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is you need to understand God like I understand God. He's telling the people, 
I am the greater Moses. Look what I do. Look at my behavior. And so I think the people look at him and they say this. Okay, Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to know God like you like, know like to God, but we don't know how to do that. And we need you to teach us how to do that. So in the, in the latter part of the sermon, he does this great thing. He says, okay, you want to know how to know God? You want to know how to pray to him? Well, it's time for you people to rethink prayer. And it's time for you to rethink how you address God. And he starts into the Lord's Prayer. And this is funny because I was talking several weeks ago to my kids about this. And for some reason, I brought up the Lord's Prayer. And they went, what? I said, the Lord's Prayer, you know. I was raised in a tradition where we said that every Sunday, right? We, we, every Sunday we said the Lord's Prayer. Then I played football, and we really said it every Saturday or Friday night. Didn't mean a thing, but we said it all the time, right? The Lord's Prayer over and over again. Well, you know, we, we don't ever say it here, right, in this church. It's not something we recite, but it's a great thing. And, and Jesus goes to the disciples, and he says, you know what? I want to teach you how to address God. Now, scholars debate whether Jesus really prayed the Lord's Prayer or he was just teaching a system or a structure on how to pray. But they, they looked at him and they said, no one has ever prayed like this. No one's ever, I've never heard anybody pray like Jesus has just prayed. And we want you to teach us how to pray. For you and me, here's our normal prayer. Our normal prayer is this. Uh, we give a list of requests to God. Lord, I need this, 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 and this. In Christ's name I pray, amen. See you later. That's our prayer, right? mostly. And I think Jesus is saying it's going to take something different. It's going to take muscle memory. See, if you're going to live in the kingdom of God, it's not going to come natural. It's going to take you doing something over and over and over and over again until finally you start having some wins that you can put in your pocket. Let me give you an example. A few of them here. Um, I play guitar. You know that. Uh, I, I do that. I've done it for quite some time, 40 years or so. It wasn't always easy to play guitar. I remember... This is going to really date me, but taking a needle on a record player and going, what? What? how do you play that thing? I just kept going back and forth. You know, nowadays it's all YouTube, right? Uh, it was hard, and I had to, had to work at it. It didn't come easy. Even today, some 40 years later, we might learn a new worship song, and I'm trying to learn a part, and I pick it out, and I kind of go, uh, I can't play that. It's just hard for me to play. I go, all right, I'm going to keep working on it, and it sounds horrible, and it sounds bad. And I keep working on it and working on it and working on it, and it becomes more, it can, more fluent. And after a while, it becomes pretty easy. And after a while of playing it in the church, I kind of go, well, that was easy. I don't know what I was struggling about because I kept doing it over and over again. In my left hand, my right hand, this muscle memory took place. You know, My son Jared is in a drum line at, at Taylor High School. And I, he always comes to me at the first of the year and he throws out the music goes, oh, this is hard. This is incredibly hard. I go, yeah, wait till after the season's over. And so he's playing it all through the year and he's playing it on the drum line. He's doing all this kind of stuff. And after the season, he goes, ah, that's easy. You know, it's simple. A couple years ago, I got a car with a push-button start. I kept going in trying to find the keyhole. You know, I go, oh, rat, it's right here, you know. And now I go into my wife's car, who doesn't have a push-button start, and I kind of go, where's the button, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a muscle memory thing. And I think of athletes, uh, you know, unfortunately, NFL is over for the year, and I'm depressed. I'm in a major depression every Sunday. I go home and I watch basketball or baseball. It's, it's horrible. Um, but I was amazed by the football because these quarterbacks will throw the ball to where there's no receiver or the receiver is just not open. I kind of go, that guy wasn't open, but the quarterback knows that 
at that time, he's at this exact moment, he's done it so many times, that receiver should break open right at this spot, right at this time, he will be there, and I'm going to throw the ball. It's muscle memory. And you think of baseball, you know, you watch these guys at the, at the plate, and they got a fastball at 100 miles an hour coming at their head, and they just kind of go, you know, or a curveball is breaking in, and they just kind of move, it's just muscle memory, they've seen it so many times, or an outfielder sitting in the outfield who's, who watches the batter in his stance, and he kind of knows just from his stance which way he's directing that, that, that pitch. And even before the crack of the bat, he's off and moving and running. It's that muscle memory that takes place because they do something over and over and over and over again. It's no different in our Christian lives, right? It's not natural for us to be in a relationship with Christ and to do things the way he wants us to do, but he says you've got to do it over and over and over and over again until it becomes muscle memory. And that memory becomes how you react when that, that fastball comes at you at 100 miles an hour. You just kind of go, gotcha. A friend of mine said this. I thought it was a good quote. He says, you know, I want my relationship with God to be in a microwave oven when God says it works best in a crock pot. Right? I want things to change a lot and, and develop a lot, but you know what? God just says, let's take our time. We'll get there. Okay? Muscle memory. We're going to keep working on this. We'll keep working. But I failed this week. I got you. You're in my kingdom. We're going to keep working on this and keep working on this, and keep working on this, till one day you'll get there, right? So what we're going to do in the last few minutes here is some training. You don't have to get up from your seats. You don't have to do anything at all. And this changed my life last summer as I was studying the Lord's Prayer. And I want to walk you through the Lord's Prayer because this is muscle memory. When life comes at you at 1,000 miles an hour, Jesus says, this is what I want you to pray. And so I'm going to walk you through this very slowly. And here's the deal. I'm going to ask you to do this this week. Matter of fact, at the end, at the t when we finish here, on the table back there, there's an outline of these, uh, what I'm going to talk about right now. And you can take it and practice it at home. But I want you to pray the Lord's Prayer every day for a week. Maybe longer if you can. This is muscle training. But here's what I want you to do. Before you start praying... You could be in your car, you could be in your office, you could be um, wherever you find a good time to pray. I want you to do this. God, I want to say something to you, but as I do, if there's something you want me to say or want me to hear, I'm listening. And just stop. And I want you to say each phrase of the Lord's Prayer and then just stop. So here's what I want you to do. The first one, our Father. And just stop. Just be quiet and think about this. For he has given us the right and the privilege to come into his presence of the majesty of God and address him as father. He recognizes the voice of his children just like you parents would recognize your children. Remember when my kids were small, we could be at uh, Six Flags or something, but if my kid screamed in a group, my wife knew it was my kid. Same way with you. If you, you could be in a group of, at the mall, if your kid raises his voice, you know it. And that's what he does for you. He gives us that privilege to come before him as a father. And so what I want you to do, what you do in muscle memory is that. I want you to come before him and just say, our father. And here's that passage I was referring to before. Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if you shall ask him for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven 
give what is good to those who ask him. Okay, you with me so far? You're in your car and you just say, our Father, and you just stop. If nothing comes to mind, you're listening. If nothing comes to mind, move on. It's okay. Who is in heaven? Hey, sometimes the word in heaven is symbolic in Scripture, but it's also used uh, uh, in actual, means actual place. There's three heavens the Scripture refers to. The first one is the atmosphere above us. The second one is the heaven or the stellar heavens where the stars are. And the third heaven is where God resides. But so many times I've prayed this prayer and said, God, who art in heaven, and I kind of think of God way up there away from me when I'm taking away one of his greatest attributes, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's in all three heavens. He surrounds me. He's in the stars. He's up in his place. So he's right next to me. So I want you to do this. Our Father, who is in heaven, who surrounds me? You're sitting in the car seat next to me driving to work. You're sitting with me as I'm taking my kids to Chick-fil-A. You are everywhere, and I am in your presence. And you just stop for a second and say, Our Father who art in heaven, God, you're not a distant God, and you surround me. Thank you for never leaving me. You always promise to be with me. Hallowed be thy name. And stop. Our great and powerful God. And think about this. God is wise enough to know what is best for you or for me. God is loving enough to want what is best for you. And God is strong enough to do what is best for you. Can you stop for a second when you're praying and say, hallowed be thy name. God, you are wise enough to know what is best for me. You are strong enough to do what is best for me. You are loving enough to want what is best for me. And just stop and let God speak to you. Hallowed be thy name, and this is the greatest one, and this one just blew me away. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Lord, I want your kingdom to do what? To come to earth. I want my kingdom to be placed in your kingdom, and what your will is on earth, I want in my kingdom, which is involved, which is in you, right? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here's your prayer. You stop and you say, God, I want for my marriage what you would have in your kingdom, what your will would be. God, I want for my finances what you would have in your kingdom. God, I want for my relationships with those around me to be what you would have in your kingdom. God, I want what you want in your kingdom now here on earth. And just stop and let them speak to you about things. Let them speak to you about your marriage and your finances and your relationships and your in-laws and, and all the stuff that's going on in your life, your work. Let them speak to you about that and say, God, how can I get your kingdom into my kingdom? I want what you want, not what I want. Once again, we're coming back into his kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread. God, I, I, you know what I need, not what I want. We don't suffer much for food around here with the restaurants and, and good food, but we do have needs. And those needs are, God, I want what you want in my life to represent you clearly. Give me what you need me to have to represent you in your kingdom. That's what that prayer is really about. It's also about, Lord, if I have needs, you can certainly bring those before him, you know? I have these personal needs, and you can make a list before him, and then just stop. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, 
Help me to respond to people the way that you would respond to them, God. With goodness, with kindness, with forgiveness, because it's my desire to be more like you. And then just stop. Who do you need to forgive? Right? What kind of anger is stored up in your heart and you have to turn it over to him? Let him speak to you. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. We could spend a lot of time on this one because the wording is difficult. And um, let me just jump ahead real quick. Lord, lead me out of the destruction that my sin brings and back into your kingdom presence. God does not lead anyone into sin, right? He, he doesn't cause you to sin. Lord, when you pray this prayer, you say, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want you to say, Lord, lead me out of the destruction that my sin brings and back into your kingdom presence. Your presence. You saved me from hell, right? Now save me from a hellish life that sin will bring. If I continue on this path of destruction in my sin, it's going to bring a hellish life. I need you to save me from that. Lead me not. Pull me out of that destructive lifestyle. You finish the prayer, and then you simply do this. You be still and know that I am God. That's it. It's a simple prayer. Listen to this. Jesus says this at the end of the sermon. Do you believe me is what he, the question he's asking. Then he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them or puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So what's going to happen if I do that, Jesus? Well, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Well, why is he foolish? He built his house on sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Get that. The crowds were amazed and astonished by his teaching. What happened in, back in, in, um, in, in Deuteronomy? Here he comes, the greater Moses. And they were amazed by his teaching. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished. And as he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? So here's it. Let me, in closing, let me finish up here and we're going to sing a song that's my, one of my favorite songs. There's two deals on the table. Either what God is saying is true and he's faithful to keep his promises that he has given to me and to you or it's just a lie. That's it. Either what he's saying is true and his promises are true and what he promises us, or it's a lie. And if it's a lie, well, go ahead and build your house on sand. See what happens. Because I promise you, metaphorically and realistically, it's going to rain again in Houston. And it's going to flood again in Houston. When life comes at you, when that fastball comes at you at 100 miles an hour, what's your muscle training going to do? Where are you going to turn? Are you going to say, our Father? Or are you going to turn some other direction outside of his kingdom? The only place Jesus describes his character is in Matthew chapter 11. He says this, Come to me, all you who, are, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to rest in Jesus. So let me ask you to do something. Can I ask you to just bow your heads and, and meditate and pray with me for, for just a minute here? And then we're going to sing a song and we'll, we'll be gone, okay? I, I Don't let this moment pass, guys. Um, You might be a strong believer, but you just need to hear the words of, of the Sermon on the Mount and, and rest by setting them aside the cystic, uh, systematic theology books. You need to put them aside and just kind of fall in love with Jesus again. I did that. I love theology, but I had to put them aside and, and fall in love with Jesus again. You might be a believer and you're hurting because your sin just owns you, you know? Um, you need to rest in Jesus who understands your sin is not shocked by it. He looks at you and says, hey, son, daughter, thanks for being poor in spirit. Thanks for mourning. Thanks for rethinking everything. And you know what? We'll get there. Maybe you have deep anger towards a person. And, and Jesus says, I want you to forgive that person, not because forgiving that person is going to do anything for them, but because it's going to get you out of a prison of anger that you're in yourself. And he cares about you and he wants you free from all that. Or maybe you've come in this morning and say, you know what, life is closing in on me and I think my good works have outweighed my bad. He might look at you and say, you know what, be gone from me for I never knew you. Jesus is asking you to seek his kingdom first, his righteousness. Or maybe someone just brought you in, maybe you're a guest or, and you just kind of go, you know, this is the first time I've heard about Jesus like this and... Um, Jesus, I trust you and I want to put you in my life. I want your kingdom in my life. I don't want to live the life the way I've done it anymore. I want your kingdom in my world. Help me to do that because my life has been a failure. Father, thank you for this morning, for your Sermon on the Mount, for you wanting us to rethink life and offering us your kingdom to step into it. Thank you that... Uh, you tell us who we are, loved by you, cared for by you. You've chosen us, accept us. It's not a mountain of morality. You want to go upstream on us and change our lives from the inside out. So we thank you and praise you. Let's worship you now. In your name we pray.